Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and every episode I make the guests introduce themselves with their name and their pronouns, and I never actually introduce myself with my pronouns, and my pronouns are she or her if you want to gender me correctly, and they, them if you don't feel like gendering me, and that's also fine, because I don't have a strong love for gendered language. And in this episode, I'm talking to Janet and Dave, who are two herb teachers living in Appalachia, who are heavily involved in rural organizing, racial justice movement stuff um, in the in the South, and they both live off-grid. And we're, we're going to be talking about the role of herbalism in prepping, and we're going to be talking about the ways in which herbalism is and isn't, like the situations in which herbalism is and isn't appropriate. And we also are going to talk a bit about how herbalism in colonized areas like North America, how herbalism ties into colonization and appropriation. This episode, not this episode, this entire show, this entire show is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show, not episode, on this network. Rebel Steps is a podcast about taking action. Season one offered insights into how individuals can join movements. Season two focuses on the ways people can work together to build these movements. Organizing in groups presents many challenges. How do you care for each other and protect each other in the midst of political struggle? How do you lift up the voices of everyone in your group? How do you work through the inevitable disagreements? All of these questions have complicated answers. As I explore these questions, you'll hear voices and stories from my community in New York City, spotlighting a range of organizers from the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, Outlive Them, Pop Gem, Democratic Socialists of America Libertarian Socialist Caucus, and more. Just like the first season, I return to Paulo Freire's quote, what can we do today so that we can do tomorrow what we cannot do today? but this time with the realization that building our capacity will necessarily happen alongside others. Find Rebel Steps on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and check us out on Twitter or Patreon. Today I'm excited to be talking to two different herbalists who are uh, who teach in herb school in in Appalachia and I was and they're going to talk about mutual aid and herbalism and disaster preparedness and all of those kinds of things. And so if you two could introduce yourself with your your names, your pronouns and then um political affiliations if you feel like it and I don't know, we'll go from there. Um I'm Janet and I um am an herb teacher and a clinical herbalist uh in rural Appalachia. And I'm involved with anti-racist organizing here that is also, um, there's a lot of like mutual aid support and connection building within what is largely a pretty white region. Um, And so we work to kind of like weave all that stuff together. Um, Also, we, as an aside, like uh, Dave and I live off the grid um, in a hardwood co-forest. And so that also informs our practice and how we do things and what communities we serve as well, because we live in a pretty backwoods rural part of um, the mountains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm Dave. Uh, I'm. I forgot my pronouns. Yeah. I use he, <laughs> him pronouns. I'm she, her. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm also an herbalist. I've been um, 
I've been practicing herbalism for 15 or 20 years. Uh, and yeah, Janet and I live um, on the same piece of property uh, where we live off the grid and we've lived there for a similar amount of time or 10, 15 years, let's say, uh, and have a relationship with the plants there and the woods there and make our lives there. And uh, I'm also part of mutual aid and anti-racist organizing in the county. Uh, yeah, that's good. Happy to be here. Cool. I'm actually, I'm excited. I'll probably end up to asking you a little bit about off-grid life stuff too. Um, my, mm-hmm. my episode about introduction to off-grid life was, has been one of the more popular episodes I've done and I mm-hmm. don't have nearly as much experience as you will. So I guess I want to, I want to start by asking how does herbalism tie into community and disaster preparedness? A nice, simple, mm-hmm. specific question like that. I'll start by saying that there's a lot of different ways into herbalism, Mm -hmm. Uh, things that attract people to herbalism, practicing herbalism. Sometimes it's just the desire for more natural, uh, however that's conceived, lifestyle or healthcare or really an attraction to plants. Um, I think that we have some of both of those, but also we just come from... uh, and, you know, I'm speaking for Janet here, too, because she was present for this as well. But, like, really, um, as an aspect of DIY, mm-hmm. self-reliance is a major part um, of what drew me to herbalism, for sure. And coming out of a culture of, like, anarchist punk DIY, that was always uh, something that was dabbled with, you know, in, like, the punk houses that I lived in, everything people had herbal medicines around. And at a certain point it became, especially once I moved out of town and moved into the woods, it became like very clear that learning more about the plants, um, and being able to, yeah. Um, being able to have those relationships, access those relationships and, and, and serve people more fully have a deeper realm of knowledge around that was something that was appropriate, desirable, maybe, you know, even crucial to do. And so, uh, yeah, I think that like one of the reasons, one of the ways that herbalism fits into preparedness is, uh, is just has to do with the fact that plants are nearly ubiquitous, (laughs) you know? Uh, and whether you have a garden or not, you know, there's probably plants growing outside. There's plants growing in the cracks in the sidewalk, as we like to say, like all of that. And then, um, and medicinal properties of plants are not, are not rare, you know, like almost all plants have them. And so learning something, you know, about, yeah, how, how to access plants as allies and as resources towards healing makes really good DIY sense. A lot of like herbal preparations are relatively low tech, you know, um, Probably one of the oldest forms of herbal medicine used by humans on earth is like the spit poultice, you know, Mm -hmm. like where you just pull a leaf fresh off of a plant, like plantain or something, chew it up in your mouth and put it on, you know, like a wound or a rash or on an abscess tooth or something like that. You know, it requires nothing besides a hand and teeth and some spit, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, Modern herbal medicine has lots of other preparations as well that require things like high proof 
ethanol or like oils pressed from seeds of plants and, you know, that, that rely on supply chains. And we can talk about some of those limitations too, if you want to. Uh, but just in general, yeah, I mean, I think the accessibility, you know, at least, and there's spectrums of accessibility, but at least in theory, herbal medicine is like pretty accessible to a lot of people, even people who live in cities, there's still mm -hmm. a lot of plants there. You can grow plants on, you can grow plants in pots on your windowsill, all of that. Um, and then also it's, you know, because of that accessibility, both the plants themselves and the relatively low tech of the skill sets and the folk nature of herbal knowledge through time, it, it has a very, it, it works like really well as a very decentralized, um, unregulated, you know, kind of rhizomatic, uh, horizontal way of practicing a form of care and healthcare in communities, uh, just because, yeah, um, most herbalists are also educators, you know, mm -hmm. part of what we love to do is part of what we love to do is to teach people, you know, about plants that they can grow or how they can make their own herbal medicine and all of this. So there's a very, the skills and the tools spread with the practice. Um, and so I think all of those things make it fit well into the preparedness, you know, uh, the goals of, pre of preparedness. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Janet. I think I would just add that, like, uh, as part of coming out of, like, DIY subculture um, with a really pretty thorough critique of capitalism and wealth-based resource sharing, <laughs> or not sharing, mm -hmm. hoarding, <laughs> um, then, you know, like, a lot of us knew the healthcare system was not serving us well, the biomedical system, or saw that it gave different amounts of access to different people. But I think that that has come into very sharp focus in the past 10 or 15 years, how completely neg negligent that system is for some people over mm -hmm. others and what the outcomes are like in our healthcare system in general, because some people are very served, but not served well. And some people are not served at all. Um, and so one of the things that I think is interesting about looking at like global healthcare is the American system is the most expensive with the worst outcomes. <laughs> so that's like a really bad pair, right? Like you're like mm -hmm. cost the most and has the worst effects. Um, so I think that like us alongside just having a desire for like health autonomy and being in charge of our own care, really there's just this gaping need for preventative care and supporting the whole body that we just don't get an option of in the system as we have it here. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would add just like that idea that our desire for autonomy is alongside like this extreme neglect of the other system that is offered. So those things together make it necessary to fill the gaps. Um, and that is where herbal medicine has been historically the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like the people who have preserved their traditions were the people who had the least access mm -hmm. to biomedicine. Mm -hmm. And often when biomedicine comes in, sometimes people give up their traditions because they think that that care is su superior when it's not always true. When you say um, biomedicine, is that what I would call allopathy? Um, it probably is what you would call allopathic medicine. I, I don't always use that word mm -hmm. for technical semantic reasons um, because... I, you maybe don't need to know this, but um, I'm curious. Allopathic allopathic means using different to treat 
uh, using difference to treat something instead of the same. Like homopathic means you give same to same. So I'm going to give you a little poison ivy to treat your poison ivy. Oh, okay. Um, but allopathic means I'm going to actually give you something to suppress your fever. Right. Instead of, you know, and so like sometimes in herbs, we're still using allopathy if we're actually going against something rather than with it. Oh, uh, okay. So the, so, you, so my, my setup of allopathy versus naturopathy is not accurate. What is a, a better dichotomy to present with? <laughs> well, biomedicine, the term that Janet used mm-hmm. is the term used by the practitioners of biomedicine to describe the like modern incarnation of technological and scientific based medicine that emerged in the 20th century. And especially Mm -hmm. after world war two, uh, that achieved a certain kind of shape and form that we are familiar with today with like research on pharmaceutical small molecules and, uh, you know, high tech biotechnological, Okay. Imaging and all of that stuff. So they call that biomedicine. And so that's like a term that we also use to refer to basically like mainstream or conventional medicine, but allopathic medicine, it, you know, can, can be used somewhat interchangeably with that. Sure. Okay. What about, um, so what would you call, would you call like when I'm, when I'm trying to present biomedicine versus, am I saying naturopathy? Am I saying herbalism? Like what is a, what would you call the alternative. I, I guess folk I medicine. would say holistic medicine. Mm-hmm. I would, would say, I don't know. Would you say holistic? Because it, for me, it's not just herbalism. Like mm-hmm. acupuncture is not really part of biomedicine here. It is in China. They do mm-hmm. integrative versions that have both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We well, could say, you could say traditional medicine or like more traditional medicine, which is, but there's downsides to that too, because well, it's traditional to who herbal and, medicine. Right. Yeah. Like, or yeah, or right. Um, but even like modern herbal medicine has aspects that are not traditional right. you know, that are novel to the modern era okay. as well. But, uh, yeah, we like to talk about holistic mm-hmm. medicine, which is also its own thing because, you know, just, just putting a plantain spit poultice on a bee sting or whatever is like not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have anything um, holistic, uh, like deeply holistic about (laughs) it, but herbal medicine is the way that we practice it is practiced within a holistic paradigm, which actually I was thinking as you were asking about prepping, Mm -hmm. um, to just to kind of draw the connection with holism, I think that there's like a, there's another point that I was thinking about as I was thinking about being on your podcast and how to talk about this stuff where uh, about how one way that we can talk about preparedness and prepping, you know, in a more like a less kind of individualist bunker mentality, Mm -hmm. you know, is to, is to emphasize that preparedness is about relationships and about having like a network um, of people who can, work together and have different skills and maybe different specializations, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but while also, you know, trying to learn a lot of skills and be like jacks of all trades and all of this, but like the relationship building, the network building is part of what forms the foundation of uh, resilience or preparedness, Mm -hmm. you know, in a certain way. And there's a good parallel there with holism 
because holism pays attention to the connections between, uh, you know, the connections between the different organs in the body and how they all support each other versus biomedicine, which tends to like hyper specialize to like, you know, you go to mm -hmm. a liver specialist only or a dermatologist who just focuses on the skin and does not see the body in the more holistic context where the skin is related to the liver, to the digestion, all of this stuff. And then of course there's the relationships with like the microbiome that's inside of our bodies and the relationships with the plants on the outside and the relationship of health to uh, stress and health to um, uh, like, like structural power mm -hmm. relations, like all kinds of things like that. And holistic practitioners, you know, to, to like attend to the health of not just a body, but the community, mm -hmm. you know, holistically, um, and using herbs, nutrition, other kinds of recommendations to do that is, uh, it's like right in line with that broader view. Mm -hmm. There's kind of like holistic prepping, mm -hmm. which is about the relationships, you know, and holism, which is the paradigm of herbalism is also about building the relationships and sort of, you know, like a body that, that has a digestive system that's well tended to and a nervous system that is like better regulated possibly with the help of herbs or other types of practices is also going to be more prepared mm -hmm. and more resilient, yeah. you know, for things that might drop out uh, of the picture or stresses that come down the line. So, yeah. I'm frustrated that you aren't allowing me this easy dichotomy that I want to draw. Um, <laughs> It's, it's very easy when you can separate things into this versus that and then uh, <laughs> compare them into these different categories. But um, for, for listeners, uh, I, or just tell me if I'm wrong, uh, I've always seen kind of like the, you know, what I was calling allopathy versus naturopathy, which I will probably now call biomedicine versus holistic medicine or something like that. Um, I, I've found them each to have like different strengths and weaknesses and like mm. i went to a, a panel um with a herbalist it might i actually don't know whether it was you dave or not um where it was uh, about pain management and it was um a, and the right. people on the panel there was an herbalist and there was a, a biomedical you know there's a doc a, a western medicine doctor or whatever and and it was really interesting because i i found that um Within it was you know uh, within the anarchist community putting on this this panel, so it was like fairly respectful of each other's practices, and it was like kind of neat to watch the doctor be like, oh yeah no no like long term you really want to work on holistic things you really like herbs are going to be much better for you long term in certain ways, and then the the herbalist was like yeah no but if like sometimes you need painkillers that are um, you know only available right. like, from a biomedical point of view. Um, is that a, right. a reasonably accurate like way to sort of divide these two to say how they can complement each other? Yeah, I would say that that is, um, that is the way that I would lay it out as well. Like, I do think that like biomedicine has its strengths, you know, like, especially say like, okay, you have a chainsaw accident. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing people like us think about. <laughs> um, it's very common accident. in disasters, honestly. Yes. <laughs> so I could probably help stop some bleeding and get us to a hospital, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but I would really be grateful for there to be a hospital mm -hmm. for, to go there because we might need to have, 
um, a blood transfusion and we might need to be able to like really like um, calm the person with like some pretty strong drugs I don't have access to while we work on it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's definitely some times that I see it as very, I'm grateful for that resource and, and for the ways that we can access that those of us that have access, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and definitely in times, um, I will say like that just for COVID for instance, like there's a place for herbal medicine in prevention and for treatment, some of the milder cases and definitely Mm -hmm. people who were sent home from the hospital with no plan of care who were able to take herbs did better, Mm -hmm. um, than people who did not. But at the same time, there were, points in which we would have been out of tools and we would have needed to be able to like, not that the respirators helped everybody, mm-hmm. um, but they did help some people, right? you know? So like there's just certain levels of biomedicine that we, that do help a lot. And I, I want, I want to have integrative relationships with those folks if we're mutually respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not always the case as you might imagine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it is yeah. sometimes the case, and when it is, I'm really grateful for those relationships, for sure, because there's some things that biomedicine is, excels at, and there are, unfortunately, in this country, there is a lot less emphasis on, on prevention and mm-hmm. within biomedicine, and I think in other countries where there is socialized medicine, prevention is part of what doctors do, too, because they are trying to keep costs down. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so... I can imagine a time, a, a way that biomedicine could happen that would look a lot healthier and would actually support individual health before there is sickness rather than just addressing sickness or just putting out fires when they erupt, which is kind of how the system works right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about some of the specific medicines? Maybe this is very regional, but I like, what are some of the specific medicines that herbalism is in a good position to offer like what are some of the things that you feel like you've had like the most success with that people might be interested in trying to look into um yeah david and i were just assessing who was going to take this yeah well probably um i would say so um beyond like there's certain I don't want to say this isn't regional exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try and highlight accessibility as um, we have it right now while there's food supply chains in effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that some of the most accessible and powerful medicines that we, that work across the board for people for a lot of different things are aromatics, which includes a lot of spices, culinary spices that we use for food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so whether that's coming from more European traditions where it might be like rosemary and sage and oregano and thyme or coming for more from like South Asian traditions and would be more like ginger and turmeric and cinnamon. A lot of those foods like support digestion. They also can be really helpful for reducing stress levels. Mm-hmm. A lot of them help cognition. They just help with so many different things and they're all antiseptic. So the essential oils and all of those plants um, are helping us digest our food and get more out of the food that we eat. But at the same time, when used in concentrated forms, could be used for wound care or they could be used for respiratory infections. You could make a steam inhalation of any of those herbs I mentioned and get support for killing stuff on contact within the mucous membranes of the upper respiratory tract. Mm -hmm. Or you could take them to help support Uh, a fever response, which is your body trying to like actually mount the immune defense against different kinds of infections. And Mm -hmm. they all support that too. And they're all easy. They're not all easy to grow, but we can all grow some of those things. And also (laughs) we can find them a 
now pretty cheap at the grocery store. Like mm -hmm. I also don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to just put all of our eggs in that basket for reasons that seem obvious to me. But, yeah. um, but what, are, what are you saying? That, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I'm a little nervous about the next year's food supply network. Um, supply chain. Supply chain. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. I will say that those are super affordable. Um, and really helpful for just like all cultures have those kinds of foods as part as part of their food ways because they help with all these things and they are medicine. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times when we picture herbalism or herbalists, we think about people out in the forest digging up rare plants um, when actually like some of the most consistently effective medicines that we have access to are on the spice aisle, you know, mm -hmm. um, or are in our window box in our herb garden. Um, so I just want to emphasize those over like any kind of like regional support for sure. Okay. Um, I was going to say yeah, go ahead. that, okay. Um, I don't know th that I think that herbal medicine can be helpful for all kinds of things. Um, and it's not necessarily like, like wherever you are, there's an herbal toolkit that is accessible to you. Um, I'm not saying it's like necessarily accessible to every person, but in every region, there's plants that can be grown or found that can be helpful. And it's going to vary depending if you're bioregional, it's going to vary depending on where you are. And then as Janet said, there's plants available in commerce, you know, um, some of which are right, are quite common and that you already have, um, in your spice rack, if you have a spice rack for sure. I think herbal medicine, like some of the most accessible and effective applications of herbal medicine have to do with like anything um, related to the surfaces of the body and the mm -hmm. mucous membranes of the body, mm -hmm. you know, just to get kind of specific there. So that's like respiratory conditions. Herbs are wonderful for like minor respiratory infections, coughs, allergic conditions, um, things like that of like the respiratory mucosa herbs are, it's pretty easy to work with the digestive system using herbs, which is really crucial because the digestive system is the, is the, that's like the roots of the tree of health where the body takes in nutrient, you know, to do all of its purposes and to repair damaged tissue and maintain the body and all of that. And I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, the health of the gut directly relates to the health of the mind and the brain as mm -hmm. well. Um, and herbs can, can do wonders in the gut and the digestive system, healing tissue, soothing tissue, calming inflammation, improving digestion, improving digestive secretions, all of that. Like a, a, a lot of what we do is work with the digestive system with herbs. And when you ingest herbs, you know, they go to your digestive system. So it's a very direct application. Um, and I would also add like the urinary tract, um, herbs, uh, can like do really well with urinary tract afflictions and mm -hmm. UTIs and things like that. Um, for sure. And then, uh, herbs like herbs for mental health is mm -hmm. something that, uh, that is like a big expanding field and herbs can have like very quick, and helpful effects on mental states, like whether it's for grounding or clarity or um, even more serious stuff, you know, too. So 
I don't know, just like where does herbalism shine in ways that are like accessible mm-hmm. you know, uh, to folks to learn relatively easily? I would say those things, you know, like some people use herbs as part of protocols for dealing with, you know, uh, long-term viral infections or Lyme disease or even cancer and stuff like that. But that's a little bit more advanced, you mm-hmm. know, but, um, but the mucous membrane stuff and, uh, and mood and emotional stuff is fairly easy to access, you know, or to like experiment with. Are there some examples that like are safe to teach on air? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. here's a, here's like real quick, easy stuff that listeners can, can try. Right. Um, you know, I would say, so when I mentioned all the culinary spices, a lot of them actually help raise energy and support people's moods too, which is interesting. And like rosemary specifically helps with cognition and can be a really gentle antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty strong flavor. So I usually add it to some other tea if I'm going to be using that. Um, I would say lemon balm is really easy to grow mm-hmm. a sweet, um, like uplifting herb that I mean, like, I mean, sweet as an equality, like you would say a person, because that's how I talk about plants, Um, uh, uplifting Mm -hmm. and can support both like anxious and depressed states, but also, um, interestingly is a really helpful herb if you have a fever. So a lot of these ones that have those, um, aromatic qualities actually help all across the board with mood, mood support, as well as a lot of the things I listed, Mm -hmm. but lemon balm is really easy to grow and easy to get. Uh, it's pretty affordable usually. Um, I would say that. And, and another for accessibility purposes, not so easy to grow in big amounts, but chamomile is at almost every grocery store in the tea bags. Um, in both uh, the Latinx food section, but also in just like regular tea sections. Mm-hmm. Um, and chamomile is such an important digestive support, but also like really nourishing to the body, like high, has a lot of minerals, but also like mood supporting and just sort of like, um, I think of them as being really supportive of like whiny states and just kind of feeling <laughs> like unsupported and whiny and like, um, uh, inconsolable in some ways. And mm-hmm. there's a way that that herb really helps with that. So the, as far as like grocery store herbs or ones that are pretty easy to grow, like I think of a lot of the aromatics, but also like lemon balm as being a helpful one there. Okay. Um, even basil though, like basil that you would cook with is actually a pretty good mood supporter as well. Yeah. And like attention and cognition right. support too. You know, yeah, like most a lot of people know that like chamomile is calming peppermint is great for nausea, upset belly, stomach tied in knots, cramping in the digestive system, Mm -hmm. that type of thing would be like peppermint. And then, you know, there's, there's garlic. There's always garlic, Mm -hmm. like another really aromatic pungent herb that is super like antimicrobial. Um, you know, you can use it from, for everything from foot fungus to respiratory infections, like the garlic breath that you get after eating raw (laughs) garlic is, uh, is the antimicrobial, um, aromatics from the garlic being excreted through your lungs, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like fumigating the inside of your lungs as you exhale the garlic, um, and yeah, so that's like just along the lines of what Janet was saying about the pungent herbs, like the the ones that have a lot of essential oils and are aromatic, 
I do want to be clear that we're talking about whole plants, though, right. um, and right. not the isolated distilled essential oils that have become kind of a craze in the last yeah, thank few you. years. Yeah. I mean, those can be useful, too, but you can't take them internally. So that's um, and they also require I can't even remember how many acres of lavender it takes to make one lavender ounce of essential oils. But it's a lot. It's not a very sustainable use of plant medicine. Yeah, I was really sad. I was yeah. looking into it. I um, I was teaching myself candle making last year. And mm. I was getting perfume oil because it was all I could afford. And then I was like, well, how am I going to get essential oils? And like crime occurred to me, but obviously I don't do crime. And <laughs> then I was like, and then, so then I was like, oh, I'll just make it. I'll make essential oils. I have land and, you know, <laughs> um, the opposite of a green thumb. Um, and then <laughs> I learned that, then I just stopped having interest in essential oils, period. I was like, I don't, I actually think perfume oil might be better, like, because it's, right. I mean, yeah, it's like nasty, weird chemical stuff, but it doesn't involve like huge swaths of lavender fields, like just so that I can like make mm-hmm. a candle that makes me calm. Um, so, right. right, right, yeah, there is something very nice about a huge swath of lavender field, though. If I ever did come across that, I bet that would be a very nice thing to experience, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you don't need to convince that no one else, of something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what would you yeah. bring if you were uh, like, I don't, I don't know what kind of preppers you all are, but like, yeah. do you have, do you have go bags? Um, you know, I honestly don't have a go bag, but do you, you're already maybe off you've, grid. You've been to, yeah, I was going to say where <laughs> you've seen our, you've seen where we live. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like pretty tucked away mm-hmm. and uh, a way that has not made that seem super mm-hmm. necessary to me. Um, but I understand the point there. But I yeah. would say that if I was gonna, ha- if I decided to put one together, mm-hmm. to throw one together, it's uh, to go, s- you know, maybe where I needed to go help some other people. Right. Um, I would, I would think about probably highlighting first aid stuff for mm-hmm. sure. Um, which you know, uh, I think that yarrow might be the most famous first aid plant that probably a lot of people already know. Um, but yarrow is actually really good at stopping bleeding uh, topically as Mm -hmm. a wound support, but also can be really helpful, um, to take internally if there's like, say like X, you know, too much menstrual bleeding or Mm -hmm. like a kind of excessive amount of that as well, or also like, um, bleeding in the GI tract, any kinds of bleeding like yarrow can be really helpful for. And so I would probably take some of that. And P- there's really miraculous mm-hmm. stories of deep, deep wounds, including chainsaws, mm-hmm. um, where yarrow <laughs> has kept people from bleeding out when when they were on their way to get sutured or whatever. So okay. definitely yarrow would be high up on my list. Okay. So that could be, and that could be like yarrow powder. Right. Like the leaves and flowers of the yarrow dried and powdered, or just keep like a bag of the leaves and flowers of yarrow, which also... Uh, you know, if, but then also if you boiled it into tea, mm-hmm. yarrow makes a very nice, um, fever. Right. Like if, if somebody has a fever, it can help like break the fever, calm the fever, uh, help like resolve that situation potentially. I mean, there's a little bit of training ideally that you would have to work with it in that way. Um, but yarrow can also head off, uh, a, acute respiratory infection if you get it at the early stages but yeah it's a famous hemostatic mm-hmm. um and the, the the tea the powdered herb or even the tincture 
dropped into a wound or something like, you know can can all help stop the bleeding pretty miraculously so that's Sierra yeah well, so that it helps some... nosebleeds too yeah so it gets into something ahead, that sorry. I no it's okay um, something that I think about with um, whenever I talk to one of my doctor friends about about medicine and herbalism and things like that you know one of the things he he points out is that like people sometimes see herbs as like the uh, the like weaker softer version of like right. whereas mm-hmm. like biomedicine is the distilled pure strong version and and I, I guess that's not always true and like and one of the things that mm-hmm. I think about when you talk about hemostatic agents I know that the I think it's Sealox gauze that we we talked about in the the gunshot um, episode. Um, and by we, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm super squeamish. So I sort of closed my ears while I was giving the interview, but, um, <laughs> it, it's descended from like, from a, Oh, I, I should have looked this up before I brought this up, but it's, it's, it's it comes from fish and it comes from, mm. I think shellfish mm. and it's, mm-hmm. you know, and there's this kind of idea that like, you know, people point out, it's like, well, medicine comes from these plants. Like it's not a wholly separate idea. Mm-hmm. I still kind of assume without having done more research that I'd rather have like hemostatic cause in my, my first aid kit. Right. Um, sure. But yeah. I, it's good to know though, you know, it's good to have more than one option mm-hmm. or you know, maybe, yeah, you, you might want to put the hemostatic gauze in your first aid kit. Um, but then, but it's good. Yarrow is fairly common herb, mm-hmm. you know, so oftentimes you can find it in the field, you know, when, what you would rather have is not available. Mm-hmm. That type of thing too. Um, yeah. 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 What are some of the dangers of herbalism? Like from a, a medical point of view, like, you know, are there easy pitfalls that people can, can do to sort of poison themselves or destroy their minds or anything interesting like that? Uh, I, well, I, so there's a lot of different versions of herbalism and I, do not want to like, I don't want to put them down, but I feel wary of ones that don't want any kind of biomedical intervention or treatment or think it's like all or nothing because Mm -hmm. there's definitely been some harm done with people who call themselves herbalists, just telling people to quit taking their insulin who are people who who Mm -hmm. died, who died from that. So like some extremes are just like completely like you, if you just do all the stuff I'm telling you to do, um, then you won't need this thing that keeps you alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely those forms I would be suspicious of. But I mean, I think, do you want to talk some, Dave, about like um, holistic COVID response and some of the pitfalls of, falls of that that we've seen? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a few different segments to this. And one of them, like what Janet was talking about is kind of the mind frame mm-hmm. a little bit. Just mm-hmm. m- maybe sometimes folks can want the alternative to biomedicine so badly that they actually do harm to themselves or to others, you know, because like, uh, by the dogmatism of their rejection of biomedicine, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've definitely, I definitely like know of people who've, who've been like, you know, I'm just going to quit my, I'm just going to quit my meds and do this instead, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and like yeah. it was maybe not the most, not the wisest choice actually, and actually ended them up in a worse place, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and yeah, like m- m- maybe there's a way that 
that that that that could have been done that would have not ended up in that place but it's an easy thing to do when folks are like fed up with biomedicine they've experienced harm from it side effects from it is to just go hard in the other direction um in a way that's like actually not um is the that is also harmful mm. um and what jana was saying about uh holistic responses to COVID is kind of like a species of that in a certain way <laughs> where, where people being, um, we've just experienced this in, uh, you know, from, from being connected to folks who are into like natural healthcare and all of this stuff in like just kind of a wider network. It's not people that we've been personally connected to, but there's a whole pushback against the myo the, the biomedical interpretation of the coronavirus pandemic mm -hmm. um that that like basically says oh you know as long as you like take care of your immune system and eat healthy not inflammatory <laughs> foods or whatever uh -huh. then you don't need to worry about this and we should all just like fix our diets and take off our masks and be free and hug each other you know? uh, -huh. uh and and it's very it's like it's a very um it's seductive. It's seductive, <laughs> yeah. but it's a very like harmful to public health messaging that is going on out there. And a lot of like very influential wellness influencers have been pushing this line. Yeah. So there's that, um, you know, in, in like a much more practical and limited scale, <laughs> there's misidentifying plants. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like, especially if you're, if you're, getting plants from the wild, mm -hmm. whether that's a vacant lot or the forest or something, you know, you can definitely misidentify plants and either not get the effect that you are relying on or that you're expecting from the plant or actually, you know, in rare but significant cases, harvesting a plant that is poisonous in some way and mm -hmm. that you could actually, you know, do harm to yourself. And that has happened for sure. I would also add that um, I think that sometimes people make this binary up that's like natural versus not natural and natural means it can't be harmful <laughs> and that is really wild right because so pl some plants are poisonous some plants are powerful have a powerful impact on neurotransmitters mm -hmm. and so that can be great if you have the right match but we all have different neuro patterns right and so um, what happens is I've seen this especially be problematic with, um, herbalism on social media where people are just like wanting to highlight plants, maybe don't know a lot about what they're talking about, mm -hmm. or maybe just have heard one very specific thing, but like say a plant like mimosa silk tree, which is such a beautiful plant and is really pretty invasive. And so, yeah, like it would be great if a lot of us just took more of that out of the wild, um, to make some room for native plants anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, that, that plant in Chinese medicine where it was originally used has specific indications for like calming the spirit, um, for supporting people through depressed states and despair and for supporting people with insomnia. Um, but when extricated from that system where there might be a more thorough look at someone before you gave it to them, mm -hmm. um, what we've seen is that in certain people who might have like tendencies toward mania or who are, have bipolar diagnoses, that mimosa can really like make them not sleep for weeks or like can cause a manic episode. So mm -hmm. people have like wrongly given that to someone or diagnosed themselves as someone who needs it and then had like pretty terrible episodes. I mean, even one of our students even had a friend like become hospitalized after taking too much mimosa. Yeah. Um, 
which is like a really specific because it's not a poison, but it has a very measurable effect on neurotransmitters. And depending on what your specific pattern is, that might be super harmful, you know? Um, and so I feel like blanket understanding as of all things natural being good for you with that, like marketing that happens on social media where it's kind of flat and one dimensional without a full story mm-hmm. has been pretty harmful mm-hmm. for sure. That's definitely something that I, I think about a lot. It's one of the reasons that I haven't been too involved with herbalism, despite having been part of like DIY anarchist scene for, you know, a while now is that, um, I consider myself very susceptible to mood alteration mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, basically just some trauma from hallucinogens. And, and so when people are like, Oh, you're, you're anxious here, try this skull cap or try this, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the, and I'm like, I actually think that that's too much drug. I don't know. I don't know if it's too much drug. I don't trust mm-hmm. you. I would probably trust you, but I don't trust this random person who went to a workshop or listened to my podcast right. to be like, right. oh, I can diagnose you. And here's this thing that always makes you happy um, and makes you unanxious, you know? And, and so for me, I actually, it's funny because one of the reasons I don't fuck with herbalism, I do fuck with herbalism, but I don't fuck with it as much as I might otherwise is that I'm like, I, I kind of respect it too much. I'm like, no, this is like, this is some real shit. Like, um, I'm looking Herbs at all the, the yeah. teas on my shelf that I'm like, the teas that I always have left are the ones that I think have too much medicinal effect for me because <laughs> I drink all of the other uh-huh. ones. Um, so you were talking right. a little bit about stewardship. And one of the things that, um, Again, I'm sort of only periphery to this world, but I, I'm I'm under the impression that there's a lot of discussions going on right now in especially like colonized areas like the United States around what stewardship means and what herbalism might mean um, from an mm-hmm. from a from both. And I think these are probably separate questions from both an appropriation point of view, but also from a, um, a stewardship right. and colonization point of view. And I was wondering if you could touch on that. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah, I think that so to also place us in the in what lineage we're part of, um, Dave and I and and our school um, mm-hmm. that we run with our friend Jen mm-hmm. um, are all part of um, in the Western herbal lineage, which basically goes all the way back to Greek Arabic medicine. Um, so, like specifically, even to like Avicenna. Um, or in back in the Arabic and further back back than that even. So like it goes back that far and Mm then, um, was sort of like, um, goes through Western Europe and then, uh, but definitely once coming to Turtle Island, um, you know, as colonial projects do kind of like absorbed whatever else was around. Mm -hmm. So learned a lot, um, took in a lot of indigenous knowledge around without probably not always with consent, of course. Um, but uh, definitely a lot of the, the like first people who identified as Western herbalists, but they probably, they were even called Indian doctors sometimes because Whoa. they learned. Yeah. Cause they mm-hmm. learned from indigenous folks. Yeah. There were settlers who were like trained, yeah. trained in indigenous healing right. by indigenous people often, you know, and, but then served mixed mm-hmm. population. Right. folks after that yeah um yeah. so they learned the specific herb uses without like suppose you know without as much of the ceremonial context or without um the larger just relationship of connection mm-hmm. 
and um, ideas about land stewardship, you know, and coming from a culture that was Judea Christian and very extractive and sees portrays like the rest of life as here for humans to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this taking of the knowledge and then also, and not always giving credit, um, usually not. And I wanted to add here because this often gets left out of the story, but enslaved Africans brought knowledge from that continent as well and from their medicine ways and mm-hmm. also because they were giving very little health care um, were also had to have their own healers in their communities who had to learn the medicine around them and there was transmission of knowledge between indigenous folks and Africans and descendants of Africans okay. um, in the south so that also happened and that is also foundational in the way that er- er- western herbalism is practiced here Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say that all of those through lines come together and including some European traditions and European plants like yarrow, for instance, is a plant that there are some native species, but a lot of them, a lot of what is here were our feral versions of European plants. Okay. Um, so the materia medica, which is the word that we use for like all of the plants that we work with, um, combines all of those plants. Um, and what I've seen happen a lot and probably also, you know, have to be like acknowledging of my own participation in this is that um, those of us that grow up without um, a reverence and realization of interconnection with the rest of life, mm-hmm. those of us that are that grow up immersed in the settler colonial extractive mindset can bring that to our relationship with plant medicine really easily. So we can come in without the ideas of um, what what it looks like for an for a plant community to be balanced, or we just come in with this entitlement, you mm-hmm. know. And also having come from a place where we within capitalism, where like we think of like we're just go to the grocery store and have these limitless options. Right. And so we bring these two frameworks of like endless resources, which is bullshit, but uh-huh. that's what we're in, in with. Um, endless resources and then entitlement to those resources that we get from settler colonialism and we get from capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so what I find is that it's just an incredible amount of work to unlearn that. And it's been that in myself. Um, but also I see that in my students, you know, like, so even when we try really hard to teach this unlearning of that framework, it's still so entrenched that people still just want to harvest the stuff when they see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the ways, there's a lot of ways that we can address that. One is like, um, actually working with whatever in, indigenous communities are around to make sure they have access to wild places and to lands like in, um, locally, uh, Cherokee folks were like, are trying to, make it so there's more wild foods in their school system there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but we're having to like apply for permits and permission to get to harvest in the national forest, which is Mm -hmm. their occupied land. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, um, So like supporting those kinds of initiatives, sharing knowledge if we have it, um, which we, so by the way, they, you know, we actually like helped like put, put a lot of the pressure on the forest service to allow that and to get a lot of people um, behind that movement to help that happen. So like supporting initiatives around that, um, sharing resources when need be, and also just acting, supporting land return when possible, I think is huge. And I think that um, when I hear a lot of people criticizing uh, herbalism, they often talk about decolonizing it. And like, I do appreciate the idea that that, um, actual decolonization does mean land return. Mm -hmm. 
It's not just a metaphor if we're talking about our practices. Um, so remembering that to support that, support connections um, and build bridges and relationships with all kinds of people um, while not, while also like helping to preserve plant communities as well, you know? So in some places that might mean like actually like doing direct action to support wild plant places, you know, um, land from development. Yeah. All of that. Um, or all of that too. Yeah. Or all forms of stewardship. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I want to say one more thing before I quit is, and it's that, um, what I have also seen though, in a lot of people who want to immediately think of herbalism as necessarily extractive, um, and is that I think that one of the other frameworks that we've been, so indoctrinated with that it's hard to see around is that humans can only do harm to mm -hmm. the rest of life and to the land that we participate with. Um, and actually that was not, you know, this whole continent was worked with and managed and stewarded by people all over it at the time of European contact. And Europeans thought that it was wild and untouched, but actually it was very heavily tended and stewarded in many places. Um, people describe the whole West Coast as being almost uh, one long continuous garden. Yeah. And even in the East, um, which had been largely depopulated because of illness and pathogens that had come over from Europe, like there, the reason there were balds and clearings was because of fire management here too. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's this idea that we can only do harm because we have this idea of what European relation to land looks like. Um, but I think that actually living in deep community with land and paying attention to the changes, creating different, helping create different like uh, micro habitats and stuff like that in your garden. Like there's a lot of different ways that we do this, but the, we can actually like build relationships, strengthen connection and take care of our plant friends in ways that helps them proliferate rather than just extracting. Yeah. And so I think when people can only see the potential for extraction, mm -hmm. they need, they have some work to do. Yeah. Yeah. I would just echo onto that. And, and everything that you said is a lot of what was on my mind, Janet. And, and yeah, that like, it's really the, we keep talking about relationship and being in relationship with, the plants and the plant communities if you're if you are going to be wildcrafting the importance of like longer term relationships mm -hmm. you know and just expanding the community of family of life of your community to include these other than human beings that you like tend to and care for and it's not in my experience it's actually not that hard to help a plant out you know <laughs> like a lot of plants they just they make seeds and the seeds just kind of fall on the ground in front of the plant or whatever. And hopefully maybe one will take, but if you learn a little bit, then you can learn how to improve the chances that the, that the plant that you are trying to help will be able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. You know, you can learn how to germinate the seeds. You can bring them into the garden. You can learn how to do asexual re reproduction and divide the plant so it creates more plants. Mm -hmm. um, there's all kinds of ways to productively uh, um, nurture life in that type of situation and like actually increase uh, the presence of plants in an area where maybe plants have been removed by um, 
previous disturbance or by like wildcrafting and everything because it's true wildcrafting pressures have diminished the Absolutely. numbers of some um, really important and famous medicinal plants like in the eastern u.s golden seal is like a famous plant that's that's very scarce in the wild now because of wildcrafting you right. know? Okay. and territory loss you know but um yeah yeah and definitely echoing what janet said about um about uh um like re like reminding ourselves that the access that we have to some of the wild places is often at the expense of indigenous folks you know whose land is occupied that do not have the easy access that we do you mm -hmm. know so so supporting uh, struggles for indi for indigenous sovereignty, I think, is part of that. You know, is part of that web of relationship as well. That makes sense. The one of the things that I think about when I, I moved, you know, I, I built my cabin in the woods, and uh, I've it's completely changed my relationship to plants. But one of the reasons it's changed my relationship to plants is that I hate poison ivy. I like despise it, um, and yeah. I don't even feel good about how much I'm like I just. If I wasn't so afraid of it, I would spend all of my time going around and uprooting it and destroying it. Um, and so it's funny because you're talking about like, you know, making sure to, to cultivate and help plants and things. And it's kind of bad, but all I can think is my, my enmity for this one particular <laughs> plant. Mm. Um, even though I like, you know, one of the reasons I don't like it is in, like the brambles and things that are taking over are mostly invasive. But then I also have this weird... I you know, sometimes I'm like, it's weird to call plants invasive when I am probably at least mm -hmm. as invasive as they are. And I actually, mm -hmm. maybe that's a, maybe that's a weird stretch, but it's something that I think about a lot when people are like, Oh, please destroy all of these like colonizing plants. And I'm like, I mean, that makes sense. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. it feels hypocritical of me to absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like a t too much of a black and white, um, take to have on invasive plants mm -hmm. themselves as well, you know. Um, I think that one thing that people have pointed out, our indigenous friends have pointed out to me that like um, people of European descent's level of like hatred for invasive plants is like a kind of projection or something. Oh, totally. You know, and so it's like, act, they're like, because, you know, our friends will be like, I totally appreciate some of these plants. I'm glad plantain is here. Why mm -hmm. are you guys so weird about plants from other places? <laughs> you know, um, and so it's interesting because I do think there is a form of like, what it, whether it's guilt or projection or whatever, that people are putting onto the plants mm -hmm. their own feelings of um, not probably not being supposed to be here, you know, yeah. or taking up space and invading themselves. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so we're coming up towards an hour, but I guess I wanted to ask you all, what is involved for someone who's listening in starting to get, starting to get more herbal knowledge and also starting to like build an herbal toolkit? Like what, you know, what kind of things are people looking for and what kind of mm -hmm. like, where should people be looking for information? Hmm. All right. I think that um, we'll definitely like also send you some links so that maybe you can mm -hmm. put them in your show notes because mm -hmm. um, I think that might be helpful for sure. Um, I was trying to think of like more regional options, but um, I don't know. What is your first thoughts on this? Yeah, I would. It's there's not really an instruction book. 
you know, <laughs> for this. Uh, and so, but there's a lot of different facets to it. So one facet would be, um, one facet would be spending more time with plants, mm-hmm. you know, and that's you know, like, so this isn't, it's not a fast road necessarily. Um, but it's a helpful one, uh, spending time with plants, learning to identify them, learning some of their names, um, if they're safe to sample and ingest, learning the different flavors and things that come with plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because the flavors can map, map pretty well onto some of the basic energetics and medicinal actions, like the basic ones that plants will have too. So whether a plant is bitter, whether it's astringent, whether it's pungent and aromatic, whether it tastes sweet, all of these things are very meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that's something that you can just explore on your own, like maybe with a field guide, you know? um, And so there's that, that's not the fast road to making an herbal toolkit, (laughs) you know? Um, But it builds your versatility and your like firsthand, you know, um, uh, the, like the, the primary skills that it would take to be like a versatile and resourceful herbal practitioner in whatever context mm-hmm. will have to do with like learning to recognize not just specific plants, but families of plants and learning to, to gather information, primary information from tasting plants, mm-hmm. you know, and finding, yeah. And learning their energy, um, in that way. Um, Oh, I was going to say this, and it's that I think I didn't really touch on the cultural appropriation part of your question earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very much. But but this gives me a chance to, and it's just that, like, if you, whatever tradition you come from or lineage that you're part of, a, a lot of people are doing the work right now to uncover, to think about their ancestors, to think about where they are from. And herbalism and herbal medicine can be a really great way to both, like, w- reconnect with those traditions and at the same time, like actually doing that work can keep you from taking other traditions, you know? And mm, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, and that, in that case, there might be like, you know, there's definitely several herbals from like Scottish or Celtic lore and discussion around use, use of plants. And there's definitely a huge, huge upsurge I've seen in like, um, herbalists from, uh, who are, whose relatives came from Southern Italy and like relearning those traditions and thinking about Mediterranean, um, ways of working with plants and definitely mm-hmm. a lot of Swana folks, like people, um, I've, I see so many people reclaiming the, those medicine ways and that how it can be. So uncovering, if you know what, you know, what kind of folks you came from, um, actually like doing the work to like try and learn those plant ways. And there's a lot of resources on the internet right now, but also that can be a really moving and transformational way to, reconnect to life but also to your dead and just to I think a lot of the problem in this culture uh for people of European descent is we had there was just a sort of like leveling where people Mm -hmm. gave up anything that they had and any kind of culture and tradition so there's this idea that no one that people who are of European descent have nothing and have no culture um while actually 
there, if we actually look into it, there are medicine ways and food ways that are powerful forms of herbalism um, that are actually like directly in our own lineages. And many of those plants are here now because of things moving around, you know? So um, I was just also thinking about like that as, um, and I can list some books that people can look into for that as well um, at the end or like send them to you. Mm -hmm. But um, but I find like that work really powerful. And I see that in our students as well. Like the people who actually really start looking at their own lineages have, you just sometimes discover that certain plants you feel a strong connection to actually like were something your family probably used, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What's yeah, go ahead. It's an interesting, it's a, an interesting thing. It's like an argument that I've been seeing go back one, you know, people talk about it one way or the other when we talk about anti-racist work mm-hmm. about, you know, whiteness is sort of the devil's bargain where we give up our culture in exchange for being in charge Mm -hmm. of everybody or whatever. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the, one of the risks that people associate with like getting in touch with, you know, European heritage, right. Right. Is that obviously (laughs) that's sketchy, right? Like, you know, to be like, Oh, like, you know, um, I, I'm like lucky. My people are Irish. So we were colonized, but then it's like, whatever like <laughs> right. we're still just right. white people yeah. in america um right. and, and so it's an interesting i like the way that you framed it because it makes me thinking about think about it as a way to abolish whiteness rather than embrace whiteness like right we've been we've been asked and we ask ourselves to abolish whiteness whiteness being the sort of um mm-hmm. the destruction of individual culture um in exchange for mm-hmm. you know our participation in white supremacy um mm-hmm. and I, it's actually, it's interesting. It's one of the, the, you talking about is one of the first times that that's resonated more with me about the idea of like trying mm-hmm. to look at where we come from as a way to, to move away from whiteness rather than embrace it. I also just wanted to say that part of what I see, at, like if we think about what's wrong, whatever, there's a lot of things that are wrong mm-hmm. with the world, but um, like disconnection from the rest of life and not feeling connected, um, seeing ourselves as separate from nature and also like not, um, not understanding what, what is at risk and at being lost with all of the life, the web of life that is like quickly going, uh, going away. Um, I really see people connecting to their own bodies and to plants as being very um, important for individuals, but also for our communities and for society as a whole, because the more of us who do that work, um, the more consciousness we have at what needs to change and what harm is being done. So I think that when Dave was talking about experiential relationship with plants, um, I just want to like second that and talk about embodied awareness with plants, even if you're talking about spices, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you Mm -hmm. make ginger tea, like what does that feel like? What do you think that might be doing? And how the reclamation of those skills, which used to be in all of our lineages, because there was a time when everybody had people that worked with plant medicine in their lives, mm-hmm. um, then you're tapping into both of those things at the same time as you're reweaving yourself more into the plant world um, whenever that you're doing that work and that having that awareness. I mean, a lot of people, it's a learned skill, like actually being able to be and drop into the body and pay attention is not comfortable for everyone. Mm-hmm. Many of us have dissociation as like a, pretty powerful defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, but learning, relearning those skills of like embodied awareness and practice with plant medicine is, is powerful in a lot of ways that are not just about what the plant is doing to you. I like that. Um, and, Oh, go ahead. 
I w- oh, I was just going to say, and it helps to have a couple of books. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot of books. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to say something, Margaret, uh, before we get to that. Oh, no, no. Go ahead and talk about books. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure if I was going to bring up any specific books, mm-hmm. but I'm just, I was just thinking back to your original question about forming an herbal toolkit and mm-hmm. what kinds of resources and how someone could take some steps in that direction. And yes, the embodied experience, I think, is a, a, like a really important thing to highlight because it's, it's not just a research. It's not like, oh, I'm going to open up a few books and scribble down, take some notes or whatever, and then I'll have my kit. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do it that way, but it'll be more powerful and long-lasting, and um, you'll be more resourceful and resilient if you if you actually get the embodied experience that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like it, it like one or two herbal reference books can really do a lot. Yes. Uh, as far as just helping you, helping you to figure out like what, um, yeah, like forming a kit, like w- w- what might be helpful, like mm-hmm. what are some herbal antimicrobials that might be good to have around. What are some digestive support herbs or simple formulas that would be good to have around, uh, you, you know, for like, how about immune boosting support? You know, some very basic herbal actions that we rely on all the time um, that a reference book or two can definitely, you know, point you in the direction of some accessible herbs. And there's more herb books coming out every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all have pros and cons. Um, and, but I think, yeah, like I don't want to recommend that people just go out into their overgrown yard and start tasting herbs. And that's the ticket to your toolkit, (laughs) you know, like to like reinvent herbalism Mm -hmm. from scratch, like just by tasting. Uh, but, um, um, yeah. And maybe like identifying and the books can help or the resources online or whatever can help identify some areas of activity that herbs can be really useful towards, mm-hmm. like whether it's like calming, relaxing the nervous system, you know, uh, at the onset of a cold or flu, you know, a topical antimicrobial, like digestive support, like all of mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Um, and then, uh, and if you wanted to, like we could maybe send you the names of a couple books that we like. Um, yeah, and there's also do. a couple. Yeah. And there's also, uh, some free information available online. Um, uh, there's a great, very old school, like website called herbcraft.org, uh, that's maintained by mm-hmm. an herbalist named Jim McDonald that has just a lot of, um, some of it is collated information that he's gathered and a lot of it is stuff that he's written himself about various common herbs and about just like the energetics of herbalism and how to understand herbs and integrate them using your senses and all that, you know, so Mm -hmm. you can just from, from your computer explore quite a bit and there's herbal uh, websites that are newer that are devoted to teaching herbalism, like the herbal Academy and uh, learning herbs, I think, is another mm-hmm. one where I think b- b- both of those have paid content, but there's a lot of free content on there too mm-hmm. uh, about getting the basics down. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. Did you the- want to say more? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, um, Mark. At the beginning of COVID, um, you know, I I chose to self isolate 
pretty strongly for my my mental and physical health. And it's amazing how much my bookshelf changed from like science fiction to references to like reference books mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. the plants around mm-hmm. me and the birds and like just because I was like I mean, you know, I think people probably have this like mistaken idea that I'm this very, you know, I live this very like natural back to nature life in my cabin in the woods or whatever, but I, I mostly spend my time making a, like electronic dance music and, you know, uh, <laughs> being frustrated that my solar panels won't give me enough electricity to mm. do that more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet yeah. I, so I suddenly I had to start looking at what if I just lived in this cabin, you know, like how would I sustain, sustain myself? And so, yeah, reference books have become a lot more interesting to me than they started off. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I want to close out. One of the things I think is really funny to me about this conversation is that I started off by being like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, herbalism is more holistic and you're like, yeah. And I was like, so give me a lot of really specific things I can do with it that people could just <laughs> take and plug into their lives. And I, I really enjoy that you both offered that, but also we're like, yeah, but the the whole point is that you have to view this holistically. Um, <laughs> And I, I think that that ties into the the kind of prepping framework that um, I think so many of us are trying to push of like, yeah, it's not the bunker mentality. It's not the, mm-hmm. it's not the stuff you have. Um, and it's not even, you know, it's like, it's funny because I'll talk about like gear and people like, it's not gear, it's skills. And I want to be like, ah, it's not mm-hmm. skills, it's people, you know, it's relationships mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the hierarchy of things that matter in terms of crisis. I feel like there's a lot more that I could talk to you about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And relationships with plants are a part of that, are like a big part of that, I think. Yeah. So That makes sense. Um, yeah. There's, there's so much more that I could talk to you about. I like want to, at some point, pick your brain about uh, what people who are facing. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, just if you randomly know, um, a lot of people are facing CS gas right now. CS gas is really interferes mm-hmm. with people's um, menstrual cycles. Right. Are there... Do you know of like um, like really quick, simple biomedical style things that they can plug into their lives? Is there like a, a way to, to have people start looking into herbal support for menstrual um, cycles? So menstrual dysregulation, mm-hmm. like specifically chemically induced? Yeah, basically CS gas is causing a lot of people to have irregular menstrual cycles and um, to various degrees of really bad. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, and a, a lot of people haven't been able to find good support around that because it's currently a, I mean, even from a biomedical point of view, it's like kind of a hole in a lot of the, uh, in a lot of what's available. I, I don't have anything specific on that, but I know who I would ask. <laughs> well, I was going to say that I um, someone shared with me a Google Doc, which mm-hmm. I will share with you, and you can put the link up or something, because mm-hmm. I just saw it on social media. But there are people on the West Coast mm-hmm. who are compiling just like staying healthy with ongoing exposure mm-hmm. to the gas, um, which I can share with you. But one of the main things they emphasize, which I think connects to this, is liver support. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the liver, you know, neutrali- neutralizes, like breaks down toxins, breaks down things from the environment, also breaks down stress hormones. When we're under stress, we like mm-hmm. have that adrenaline going all the time. And that can also interfere with the systems of the body oh, if we stay mm-hmm. hyped um, and have sympathetic 
response and full effect activated all the time. Um, but the liver helps break down the stress hormones, also helps um, break down any toxins that we take in. So a big section of the doc that I saw around the support had to do with um, just supporting the liver Mm-hmm. And supporting liver function usually supports menstrual function as well. Okay. Um, so I would definitely work towards, you know, I would tell people to take milk thistle regularly. And mm-hmm. I don't think you should make your own tincture. It doesn't actually work. This is one of the only ones that I prefer a supplement for because the standardized extract of milk thistle is much more effective than tincture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually protects the liver and helps regenerate the liver because after enough exposure, you can actually start to have permanent damage. Right. Um, so right. that's definitely one thing I would say. Milk thistle seed though okay, is, right. oh, that's is right. like very accessible. It's a cultivated plant. It's invasive in the Western U S even. Um, but this, uh, and the seeds of milk thistle, which you can just buy in commerce, uh, grinding them up mm-hmm. and just either sw- them whole or mixing them into oatmeal or something is a way to just go to go directly from plant to body without having to go through the intermediary step of any kind of laboratory preparation Mm -hmm. and that works really well but it's true what janet said don't make a tincture out of milk thistle or a tea um neither of those work very well uh but yeah i would second the liver stuff Liver and hormones go together really like the liver um, is responsible uh, to a certain extent for like regulating sex hormones and the menstrual like regulating hormones and taking them out of circulation Mm -hmm. when they need to be and all that. And so if the liver is burdened by toxic exposure, then it can throw off everything that the liver is governing in the body Mm -hmm. uh, too. And so the other piece to that, which you were probably going to get to is like bitter herbs in general. Mm -hmm. There are some specific ones in the herbal materia medica that are like, we specifically use to enhance the liver function, like artichoke leaf or something would be an example of that. But, but, uh, anything that has the bitter taste, Mm -hmm. um, is going to enhance liver function. So, um, you know, and that can even include black coffee, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, but also like you could get fancy and create some digestive bitters or take other kinds of bitter liver enhancing formulas um, as well. Dandelion greens, like eating bitter, bitter salads. Um, Mm -hmm. it, that, that flavor is really important to our overall health, which we could talk about for another hour. But (laughs) just to say that the liver actually requires the bitter flavor to be stimulated to work. Mm -hmm. It like, it kind of perks up the liver. We co-evolved to be eating bitter things. And that has mostly been bred out of our diets. Mm -hmm. Um, So good digestion actually requires some bitters. And in European traditions, there's still like, you still take bitters or have a digestif or aperitif, like people of all classes still Mm -hmm. involve bitters in their lives, in their food ways. Americans do not so much. So um, for people who are under liver stress because of exposure or also just from the stress of being in the streets all of the time, that is hard on the liver as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then yeah, introducing bitter in all any way possible is going to really just help the liver do its job more. And stimu- it literally mm-hmm. stimulates, stimulates the liver. And I actually, I mean, literally in the old way, which means it <laughs> like actually, actually, <laughs> actually, stimulates. I just realized I tried not to use that word anymore, but uh, it actually <laughs> stimulates the liver. Yeah. There might be something specific about CS gas too that right. is an 
endocrine disruptor I think in there a is. way that's yeah. like mm-hmm. more more specific than just like toxic load. Um, but that's something that I haven't investigated. And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. but, so there could be like a deeper level to go to there with that. But but the liver thing would be foundational, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I could easily pick y'all's brains for another several hours and, and maybe I will I again sometime. Um, but thank you so much for sharing what you know. And um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk to you all soon. If you enjoy this show, please tell people about it. There's a bunch of algorithms that decide what everyone does and doesn't get to be exposed to. And that is a terrible way for the world to be run. And it is the way that our world is currently being run. And you can influence it by getting people to have access to radical information, including the show, if you like this show. And you can do that by liking and subscribing and sharing and telling your friends about it and just basically spreading the word. Uh, a lot of people have been doing that recently, and it's really amazing. A lot more people have been listening to this podcast. A lot more people have been reaching out with suggestions, and I appreciate all of it. So if you want to reach out to me with any feedback, you can find me most easily on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy or on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. And if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Killjoy. And there's lots of stuff up there. Uh, there's some 30, almost 40 zines, as well as a bunch of music and other things. And I often share things first over on Patreon. Um, but if, um, if you can't afford to support me, don't. And if you want access to the stuff that I put over on Patreon, just message me. And if you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, just message me and I'll get you access to all of it for free. But in particular, I would like to thank Chris and Nora and Hoss the dog and Kirk and Willow and Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, and The Compound for making this podcast and so many of my other projects possible. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all of you for listening and good luck with everything. I'll talk to you soon.